0: Welcome to session one of our six-session webinar series, a joint project of TeachingAmericanHistory.org and the Center for Civic Education's We the People program. These six webinars will focus on a foundation for teaching the United States Constitution and are hosted by Dr. Gordon Lloyd, Senior Fellow at the Ashbrook Center and Professor Emeritus of Pepperdine University. Each session consists of approximately 45 minutes of presentation from Dr. Lloyd, And then approximately 30 minutes of questions and answers from a live uh, teacher audience in attendance. This episode is actually a re-recording of our first session because the audio in the first session was not up to standard. Although the questions asked at the end are the questions that teachers asked in that first session. So I will introduce Dr. Gordon Lloyd, who will now take you through his presentation about the first hearing question. This is the first and the big question the
1: unit question is what are the philosophical and historical foundations of the american political system later on we will examine whether the american political system has any foundations at all or if those foundations have crumbled but in this session we want to try to at least address the issue that there are foundations That doesn't mean to say that foundations are end nations, they're just beginnings. And so what we want to look at is to what people or events do the founders of the American political system appeal in terms of history and philosophy. That is the overall unit question. In pursuit of that overall unit question, there are three. Sub issues related to it and then within each of those three there are two. <clears throat> encouraging questions, so I want to encourage you to ask questions. Dealing with this rather than to treat this as a as a lecture, which is uh, giving you the word, not just of wisdom that Jeremy said, but finality. I just think curiosity is important for you and your students. So what is, so that's the big question. What is the first question which is asked? Quote, what is meant by the revolution, the war? That was no part of the revolution. The revolution was in the minds of the people, and this was affected before a drop of blood was drawn. And that is from John Adams to Thomas Jefferson in 1815 when they were reconciling and way after the revolution. So this is a reflection on what the revolution means. Does it mean an action or does it mean an idea? That is, is, it grow, is, it, is the foundation in thought or is the foundation in action? And Adams is suggesting that is, the foundation is in thought so we have to figure out whether that thought is based in history or philosophy and so adams is downplaying the blood and the actual fighting revolution in the sense of changing structures and putting people's heads on a pike so that's not the idea of revolution for adams and why would he even say so well the answer is between 1776 and 1815 when he wrote this you have the French Revolution, and the French Revolution is full of pikes with heads on them, and uh, <clears throat> and reigns of terror, and so you wonder whether a revolution means blood, or a revolution means ideas, and whether you can have a change in ideas without dropping blood. And Adams seems to suggest that if you want to understand the revolution, you need to understand that it was a revolution of ideas. So that's what we need to figure out. Yeah, um, in, to what extent are these foundations a con- continuation of what has happened before, and to what extent have is is it an American foundation, which adds to or departs from an historical and philosophical tradition? And Adams is quote which has been cited helps us to make a distinction between what we would call civic education and civic participation that is civic education being an education in ideas and saying that 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 there's something wrong here or there's something unfair here civic engagement is doing something about it civic civic engagement is doing something about it civic education is thinking about it bef- uh, thinking before you act uh, and i think adams's his point brings that out it's uh, it, the, the the citation which i mentioned uh, is followed by a question do you agree or disagree with this opinion why well, i've presented you with an idea of of why one might want to agree with this opinion that revolution is not simply about blood but it's about ideas. And that what makes an American an American is not just simply the action of separating from Britain, but thinking differently. So I would tend to agree, but that has me to say that you have to agree. But I think I've posed to you the grounds for disagreeing with me. And that would be that the revolution was not about ideas and the American mind being different, but rather, the revolution was an act of rebellion done instinctively, and that it was blood. And that is a tradition which started somewhere in America, like with Shays' Rebellion or whatever, and then led to a whole bunch of other actions. So I think the importance of of this question do you agree or disagree with the opinion that the revolution is a revolution of ideas rather than a revolution in the sense of blood do you agree or disagree it turns on that issue and i tend to agree with adams and i've just given you my position but again you don't have to agree with me what evidence can you offer to support your position or well, what evidence i can is this reconciliation between the two writers of the declaration Including well, then as old Ben Franklin. These two people, Adams and Jefferson, disagreed with each other over a whole bunch of things. And Adams offers to Jefferson in this letter that the key thing to understand about the American foundation is that there is something called an American mind, which is somehow different from a European mind or other minds and that the overall unit is inviting us to explore the historical and philosophical foundations i mean is the american mind simply an update of athens an update of jerusalem or is there something unique and my proof that that jefferson in the end agrees with him is that right near his death he wrote a couple of letters one to richard henry and one to lee and another one to whiteman and, and which he said that what we're talking about here is not again this is in the light of the french revolution which not only declared independence but declared an in in the sense from um uh, from the ancien regime but it declared a separation in terms of the calendar they they they, they rewrote the calendar they rewrote street names names that they found offensive they got rid of they changed the calendar they changed everything which is a revolution as we understand it and the Americans didn't so this letter in 1824 25 that Jefferson wrote is as well as the Adams letter is written in the light of the French Revolution which was really revolutionary there are two understandings of revolution. One is breaking free completely from the past and moving forward in a revolutionary fashion And the other kind of understanding of revolution is You're turning around like a wheel on a bicycle as you go forward You've made a revolution you need to make another revolution, you know, it's not it's not a revolution in anger uh, That you're going to sort of say from here on in i'm not going to follow the laws of motion that like things go around. I'm going to break through. So there are two things about revolution. One is it, is, is it could be understood as a breakthrough, and you don't need the past French. And and then there's the American one, which is a breakthrough, but it but it has a respect for a for the past, and that's the riddle we have to work out in this whole unit. Uh, were the were the British justified? In believing that British politics violated basic principles of constitutional government. Why, why not, Well, we have to kind of understand what constitutional government entails. Um, and I, I think the key For both the British and the Americans was the following question. Is it possible to restrain a monarch From abusing power in terms of religion or property or other things. Is it possible. And I think from Magna Carta historical and the writings of certain people uh, philosophical uh, like filmer. There's this idea that it is it is possible to restrain a monarch from being from misbehaving. And I think part of the American Revolution is not necessarily the idea of blood and and heads on pikes, but introducing the revolutionary idea that you cannot secure rights with a monarch. That is, there is a tendency within monarchy to become unrestrained. There's an absolutism, a concentration. And so finally, I think what the colonists did between, say, 1774, to at 17 1764 to 1776 came to a realization that it is very very difficult if not impossible to solve the problems which they had by petitions and meetings that as we've tried uh, our um, uh, you know going to a therapist and doing all of those kinds of things but it not going to work and this is a world in, in, where they lived, which was re- which required um, justified divorce, so to speak. That is, they have to give their reasons. Today, there's no fault divorce. It's I'm uh, you know I don't don't like you anymore or I'm not fulfilled or this is not the way I want to live my life anymore. And that's enough reason. And you just go to the judge and get it stamped. But I think the historical and philosophical foundation for the Declaration of Independence and independence was we are not getting a satisfactory solution through discussion. And that means we have to raise the ante from petitioning to divorcing. But the divorce is not simply an act of will or self realization it's an act which involves a listing of the grievances a listing of the problems and that how it is not possible to secure rights through a restrained parliamentary system or a restrained monarchical system and i think that is extremely important to realize um, that in other words changing the form of government becomes one of the important aspects of what America did with regard to securing rights. As you can see in the declaration, it's the right of the people to choose the form of government under which we live. Magna Carta, there was no issue there of choosing the form of government. It was monarchy. The the idea was to try to make the monarch not absolute, to, to, to try to encourage the monarch to be reasonable. So you list rights and you have due process and et cetera to try to make the monarch reasonable So that by the time you get to 1680s in Britain And the Bill of Rights in Britain It's that King James cannot be a reasonable monarch So we invite his daughter and husband to come and you get William and Mary, but but the British expression of rights and securing rights the historical foundations Which Americans might rely on Magna Carta and the English Bill of Rights does not say they do not neither of them say That the way to secure rights is through a democratic republican government that is unique and that that You cannot find a historical reference for that even though they're relying on due process and Magna Carta and the British Bill of Rights. I think what is revolutionary is not necessarily the blood That comes through in 1776, but the change of idea that in order to secure rights Due process rights and the rights of religion and the rights of property. You need a change in the form of government The change in the form of government is we must move to direct Excuse me. We must move to directly to an alternative to monarchy slash aristocracy. Um, So I think that leads us to that second question, which says, in what ways were the founders influenced both positively and negatively by past government uh, governments and governments from their own time? And I think the the positive influence is the importance of uh, the emergence of the rule of law as an important as now people are going to argue then and they argue now, but exactly what should be included in the rule of law and who's to enforce it. But I think at its core, the rule of law is to be opposed to the rule of men. And that means that the rule of men has the has the capacity within itself to produce through corruption and the influence of power, bad men, bad people. So what we need are restraints thus we get the rule of law rather than the rule of men and I think It's very difficult to explain but even if you have the rule of law, you've got to have men in there You've got to have people in there exercising the rule of law whether they're judges or elected officials, but I think the So in one sense, it's absurd to say we want the rule of law rather than the rule of men because you're going to get the rule of men but in a non absurd fashion if we look upon this in, and give it a high ground the rule of law is an indication to everyone through constitutions through statutes, through edicts that this is what we can and cannot do if you're in power and it's opposed it is opposed to the idea well i am el jefe i am such and such therefore i am above the law so I think what this is showing in terms of positive and negative is that the historical tradition from Magna Carta and the philosophical tradition is to try to encourage those who are in power to obey a rule of law. Uh, no habeas corpus acts that is not not making them um, you know, just putting a prisoner uh, putting somebody in prison and not giving him the right to counsel. Uh, no ex post facto law. Ex post facto law means uh, I can make a, I, I make I could just pass a law which makes a criminal offense an offense criminal, even though it wasn't criminal when you did it. So there are certain expectations from history and philosophy through the rule of law that the, 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 that you can can or ought to be able to restrain government. That's the positive part. The negative part is it don't work. I think that's what they learned. It, it, it just doesn't work. The, the, the governor can have an absolute veto. The king of England can have an absolute veto. The, if the folks at home do not have control over their own destiny. Uh, it's all in the hands of, of another country far away. And I think what we want to declare independence from that. It's not just simply an, an idea of we're going to we're going to quarrel and have a war, and it, blood is going to fill. That's what revolution means. But we're no longer going to tolerate uh, the pre- the presence of monarchy. We're no longer going to tolerate the idea that you can have a good monarch, that it is possible to restrain a monarch. The only way to have restrained or limited government to have a non-monarchical government, and the only way within that is to deny titles of nobility for aristocracy who then will wander around the country exposing themselves as superior people so i think that's what is revolutionary not just the blood and the action but the notion of the idea so there is history involved from magna carter there are philosophical ideas from Locke and montesquieu but there's an american touch to it that is, Americans develop their own history and their own ideas and <clears throat> express those ideas and actions in a way that that encouraged others in the rest of the world to look upon America as unique. And then discourage people in the world, particularly the British, from saying, what is going to happen to the Empire? Isn't that what it's all about? These folks are, are uh, rebelling against the empire, and they really don't have that much of an argument. We, we really do, we're all brothers, we're all family, we're all sisters. What is this all about? And I think the British missed the point that the Americans discovered that they were Americans and not British. And when that occurred and how that occurred is absolutely fascinating. So, this overall question what are the historical roots and philosophical roots we need to explore? and then add so what did americans do to these historical roots and philosophical roots to make them american because the historical and philosophical roots didn't necessarily find themselves originally within america they found themselves within europe say so how, how do you import ideas that i mean you can immigrate you can have people immigrating but you can have ideas immigrating and how do you Americanize them? And what does it mean to be an American? And I think that's the story, that's behind this whole this behind this whole unit. Um, uh, and number two, why did the founders distrust direct democracy? Well, they had every reason to distrust direct democracy, because of the tradition and history and philosophy, that all direct democracy were, were um, was, was like fanicide. They Uh, there are some as utopian that the assumption is that you can get everybody together and through some kind of consensus or general will you can produce public policy on the spot but I think the founders distrusted that kind of direct democracy because they felt that the more you put a large number of people together in one spot the more they will discover the nastiness that they have, the prejudices that they have, and the easier it is for them to act on it. So, if you want liberty and privacy, which is linked to liberty, then direct democracy is not the answer because it, in fact, does not encourage deliberation and choice. What it does is they encourage action. And sometimes, and a lot of the times, it encourages direct action of an intep- impetuous and non-thought-out activity. So the founders were interested in something that they would call indirect democracy, not that the people would make the decisions on the spot through various techniques of assembling in person or just pushing a Twitter or doing things like that on social media, but rather through deliberative uh, means, which means. The legislative branch and consent and and that has actually once we've tried to settle the idea of what do we owe the past history what do we owe the thinkers of the past philosophy what do we owe uh, our connection with britain and we're on our own the next stage is how do we govern ourselves and although they've had uh, um, experience with Britain are not governing themselves that way. I think the Americans were also concerned through history that when people have assembled without a monarch or without aristocracy, they've made a mess of it. Every single regime in the history of the world has collapsed. And I think that is what is lying behind the framers understanding in in, in what ways uh, positively negatively uh, past governments and what history and the and philosophy of taught, every government has failed and in fact the more it has relied the governments have relied on democracy the nastier the failure has been and it has in fact encouraged a re um uh, a, a pushback that the only way in which you can govern is through dictatorship the military or monarchy or a strong leader so that all the efforts from history and philosophy which have been to try to introduce a direct democracy on the spot because they failed has actually led not to more direct democracy but have led to a pushback a reaction And I think what the framers are saying, we now here have the opportunity to create a different kind of democracy, where the people give consent, where the people do the electing, that there are frequent elections, but we elect representatives from various parts of the country to make the decisions. So it's not that the people are making the decisions on the spot. But rather, their representatives are making the decisions and then reporting back to them. And if the report isn't sound, they can be defeated. And I think that's the key difference between direct democracy and in dimar- indirect democracy. And one, one way to look at this, and I, I know it's very difficult because the word democracy has such a powerful, positive meaning to us today. When World War I ended, Woodrow Wilson suggested that the task was to make the world safe for democracy, that the problem was the world. And ever since, we've been trying to build build, uh, structures like the League of Nations and the United Nations and NATO and the IMF and all these structures to to make the world safe. And the driving idea is that when the world is safe, people will become democratic uh, bit by bit. I, I think that's a utopian expectation. And we will look a lot, we'll look into that when we get to unit six and the hope from the United Nations in 1948 with their declaration of human rights, that somehow all the world, if we just followed the rule of law of the United Nations would fall in place. The interesting thing about the ni- 1948, uh, declaration from united nations is that is that they did not pay attention or did not think it was important to pay attention to the to the form of government that somehow rights could be secured even if you had uh, dictatorships and uh, communists etc and that and that somehow you didn't need to pay attention to the form of government And I think that is a major difference between 1948 and beyond and 1787. I think the reason why the framers did not want monarchy, nor did they want aristocracy, nor did they want direct democracy is because they did not think that rights would be secure under these three forms of government. So we need a different form of government in order to secure rights. And I think that's an important um, breakthrough, because all the 13 colonies decided to create something called a Republican form of government, which is really an indirect democracy. And then they argue, well, so what is Republican? What what can we leave out? And what is essential and what is not essential? But that's an argument which is very different from the past. That's an American argument or an American uh, sort of generated argument with different kinds of historical and philosophical implications. We turn finally to the third uh, big question. Now, Let's just repeat in case we've lost our way. We're looking overall at what are the philosophical and historical foundations of the American political system. I've tried to explain that in terms of the rule of law. and I, I, and the idea that the form of government matters and that rights matter and yes we've learned from history and yes we've learned from philosophy but we're Americans which means that we can actually do something on our own rather than simply appeal to history and that we can come up with another idea and not simply appeal to philosophy so that's that's I think that's the overall point that I'm trying to make the first Big question is what is meant by the revolution? The war is the revolution a revolution of blood and action, or is it more of an idea? And 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 that is, I mean, did Americans become Americans because of the war, or did Americans become Americans before the war? And that's Adam's challenge to Jefferson, which I think Jefferson ultimately agreed with. But that, I think, is what unit, you know, uh, the the. the the first question is getting at the second question: In what ways were the founders influenced, both positively and negatively, by past government and governments for their own time? I think we, we we've we've covered that. Direct democracy is out. Monarchy is out. Aristocracy is out. Um, we need to restrain power. We need to limit the range of government, which means we have to bring the people in, but we don't want uh, people collecting on one spot. So that's that's what they've learned. So now we turn finally. To this third part. And the third part uh, has a, is, is very interesting. It's a quotation from an August 20th, 1915 piece. And um, the, the, the question is, is in the form of a quotation. quotation in just 1,337 words. The Declaration of Independence altered the course of history. Written in 1776, it is the most profound document in the history of government since the Magna Carta. All right, that's that's the point. So somehow Magna Carta is the gold standard, is the point of departure. And a lot of this historical and philosophical arguments that we're gonna be engaged in uh, we ultimately have to deal with the magna carta not just because it is was it 800 900 years old it, this year but because the way in which we're framing when did america begin to what extent did america rely on the past the magna carta looms very large historically philosophically it is do we begin with athens do we begin with rome to what extent does jerusalem matter or all, all of that and I think uh, uh, this is a very good question. But my, my under the point I would like to make is that it's important to realize that the Americans did something revolutionary without necessarily being bloody and nasty about it. It's not the American Revolution is not the French Revolution. It did not lead to um, revolution in perpetuity, and and, and encourage. That kind of action. So in just one fact. So, I, so it's, this is the claim that it is the mo, uh, the Declaration 1776. It altered the course of history. Now, that's a big claim. It, it, b- b- there's a sense in which I would argue that 12 years, 13 years later, the, de- the French Declaration altered the course of history far more than the declaration of independence uh, in the sense that the french declaration declared a complete separation from the historical and philosophical past they changed the names they did everything and they couldn't make it because they cut off from their past and they wandered into the future without a guide and it led to other revolutions other revolutions in france and europe and also was the philosophical foundation for both the russian revolution and the chinese revolution and other revolutions and rebellions which have taken place since it's a rebellion against the past the american revolution i think attempts to bring what is interesting and manageable about the past into the american context and americanize it and move on So, yeah, the Declaration of Independence altered the course of history because it introduced the American experiment And therefore we have to understand What was the course of history before and I I, The way I look at it is the course of history before was absolutism in monarchy and So the politics was the divine right of kings and it was monarchy Uh, What the declaration in effect said is that relying on the divine right of kings uh, Again through John Locke and philosophical ideas that relying on the divine right of kings Suggests that there is no way that the people can choose the form of government under which they live They can only choose the monarch under which they live. So there's a certain revolutionary Introduction. Yes altering the course of history Henceforth. Monarchy is not, um, shall we say, the um, default position without objection. And as you can see today, just two hundred years, three hundred to two hundred fifty years later, there are very very few monarchies left, and those that do exist are heavily controlled, and. Uh, And so that did change the course of history uh, in terms of the the form of government. I think the the declaration also changed the course of history in terms of property rights, that uh, for centuries, including the century of the Magna Carta, property rights were understood to be the the, um, uh, sort of inherited right that the lord had and that the serf didn't have any rights to property and that you had these big mansions and big uh, properties and the distribution of that property was governed by the law of primogenitor and the law of primogeniture is that the when you die the property that you have shall remain intact that's the important part of encouraging aristocracy. The property r- will remain intact. And the way to do that is that the first male born, primogenitor, the first male born shall own all that property. Well, and then it, you, know, you go, so what happens to the rest? Well, what we're really interested in is not what happens to the rest, what happens to the brothers and sisters and siblings. What we're really interested in is securing aristocracy, which is land. So I think. One of the things that the revolution has done is not only challenge The idea that monarchy is the only form of political rule but it challenges the idea that primogeniture and aristocratic inheritance is the only way to distribute private property and You will see that not only is a monarchy put in the bucket so to speak when you when when the revolution manifests itself but also primogeniture is put in the bucket that you have a new understanding of private property rather than simply landed aristocracy those are two revolutionary it seems to me principles one political to choose the form of government under which you live and the form of government that pretty much everybody choose, chose was a democratic republic, which is not a direct democracy and it was not a monarchy. Uh, there were variations be- between one state and another. And the second re- revolutionary thing is to challenge the fundamental foundation of aristocracy, which is primogeniture that takes some time to work out. But if you look at the Northwest ordinance of 1787 and in the land of, of, of where Virginia gave gave up, it became a sort of what it means to be an American in a new America. I mean, the first line is no primogenitor and that property then will be distributed in a different way. And that that doesn't say it solves the problem, but the different way is that the parent who has the property now has the opportunity to distribute the property evenly among the family members unevenly among the family members but what it does is to open up someone other than the eldest male and what that does is to start a process where women can actually own property particularly particularly if you're single and if you are uh, divorced not 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 just divorced I, i mean you are a widow because then it gets into marriage laws, which are different than property laws and and and, and what not But it opened that so women could own property, particularly if they remained single or Or, or were widowed um, And I think that's a huge step and the third area where I would say it was Sort of revolutionary as an idea rather than as a bloody affair uh, Was in religion that there's nothing in Magna Carta that deals with the notion of the freedom of religion. But in the Declaration of Independence and its accompanying documents, which, which were inspi- which inspired the declaration and which in turn the declaration inspired, I mean, the freedom of conscience was, was, was high on the list. And you will not get that from Magna Carta. So the third revolutionary idea is that we can worship God as we see fit. I think those are three revolutionary ideas. Now, I think what is important to recognize is that those three revolutionary ideas do not necessarily lead to revolutionary politics in the form of bullets and guns and stones and sticks, etc., as in France. To have, to choose the form of government doesn't mean that you're going to choose a form of government which is going to be unstable. Uh, to, to, to worship God as you please doesn't mean to say that you are going to worship God in such a way that is slanderous to the to, to, to others. So, I mean, I think there's some responsibility in this revolution, which I think you don't find in the French. Uh, so in just 103, the, the declaration altered the course of history. I would say it didn't alter the course of history as much as the French Declaration, but it did alter the course of history in in a profound way since the Magna Carta in three areas, choosing the form of government, worshipping God as you saw fit, and providing a greater foundation for the right to private property than simply inheriting through primogeniture. Uh, The Declaration claims that some rights are unalienable. What does this mean? And and do you agree with this idea? I will just simply say that what is interesting is that the Magna Carta and the human rights doctrine, which we will see in the last year, do not appeal to God and do not appeal to something called unalienable rights. So that raises the question both with regard to the 1215 document of Magna Carta and the 1948 document of human rights. Is where it raises the question Then, where do those rights come from? If you don't think that they're unalienable unalienable rights means we can't We can't alienate them they're there and, and they're part of who we are and they come from some foundation outside of who we are uh, outside of the um, Political framework they come from god or they come from nature or they come from nature's god but they cannot be attributed to the current the, the current tradition or the current government. So that, I think that's what an a- unalienable right means. And what is it? Uh, what, that's my idea. What, um, what, uh, what do you agree? Yeah, I agree. I agree, even though it's very difficult to express. What I think is important about the Americans is that it is non-negotiable. That they're, the, the basic rights that they're fighting for are not rights which depend upon history because history can change and are not rights which simply depend upon tradition because tradition can change and are not rights that depend simply upon government allowing it so there's no claim in the declaration that we have a right to education because that would be a right that's not inherent but would be a right that somehow evolves. And that is something to talk about, not to say it's inherent. Under what circumstances does the Declaration justify a right to revolution? Do you agree with a justification why or why not? The Declaration justifies revolution after you have tried all alternative peaceful and negotiating methods. And so, built into the Declaration is not a revolutionary, I have to. Willful act to overthrow, but rather Is there it possible to be reasonable? Can we talk about it? Can we settle this dispute? not necessarily solve a problem Which is what we seem to talk about a lot now But politics actually is trying to settle disputes not solve problems. Can we settle this? And maybe it can only be settled for ten years, maybe it can only be settled for fifteen years. And I think the, re- the the right to revolution emerges just like it did in Locke philosophically. It emerges in the declaration after I have exhausted all available methods of persuasion and diplomacy. So you shouldn't do it for light and transient causes, but only when a long train of abuses has occurred. And that becomes a difficult the long train of abuses that you, do you have to write a list do you keep you, you keep a paper trail and then at the end you say i have three pages of naughty behavior on your part which demonstrates that i have tried i have really tried we've done through therapy and i've done everything else but now it's time to leave what what have i done here's the list and so i think the declaration is not an invitation for intemperate behavior i have a right to revolution but rather i have a right to self defense when things break down it's a right to preservation both in, in in marriage and in obligation to one's country so that's part of the contract the contract does not involve i will obey until the end of life it it, it is a contract in there which says i can withdraw but the withdrawal has to be listed, documented, persuadable, and defended in the light of the world. So you so you commit your ideas to uh, the decent opinion of mankind. That you're not just being willful and an indecent chap, but you really thought about this, and, and you can't work it. So it's so it's like a just war versus an unjust war. A just war is a war of self-defense. An unjust war is a war where you deliberately go out and kill people and exercise your power. So with that, which is about 45 minutes, um, covering the three issues, I will now turn to Jeremy and see what kinds of questions have emerged as a result of what I hope is is, is something that has prodded your mind uh, to ask some questions.
0: Okay, our first question is this. Why weren't women, free African Americans, Native Americans, and, and others, why weren't they included in this definition of liberty that the Declaration of Independence laid out?
1: Um, that's a That's a very good question and a question which dominates historical interpretation of the past. I think... Uh, my answer is to is to look at is, is to actually read history forward, rather than to read history backward. If we were to go um, To 1776 1787 and ask the question, and what countries of the world were women permitted or encouraged to be part of the political community? I think the answer would be zero. Um, that's not necessarily a defense of the framers, but I'm a very big believer that one should read history forward rather than backward, which means that we need to ask the question, compared to whom or compared to what, rather than some, excuse me, evangelical or absolutist position from the present, which looks back and says, aha. And history moving forward is seems to me is, is inclusive. Whereas history reading backwards is trying to prevent vi- uh, pre- present villains in this story. So women weren't included. I think there was a widespread understanding in the world that slaves. I mean, if, if if you are a slave, then you're not free. I mean, that's the very definition of what slaves are. So I think the question really is. Um, why weren't African Americans included? And the answer is they were, in nine out of the thirteen states. That doesn't mean to say that they went to the polls or they went and participated and they weren't discriminated against. That's not the issue. The issue is, were American, were African Americans free to participate in the political community? And the answer is. Yes, it depended on where they lived. And one can raise the question of, well, that's not critical, is it? Wait, what, why should an absolute and fundamental right depend upon where I, the accident of where I live? So part of the story of America is extending this liberty, sometimes very tough, sometimes through blood, but extending this liberty. And with regard to women, I think marriage laws have an incredible (laughs) restraint on women participating and because i mean i can remember in my lifetime going to weddings including my own in which the the vows were different and that the man promised to cherish and the woman promised to obey and so I think we need to take a look at marriage laws and the changes and the of marriage laws before we jump on the uh, on the founders. So I think while <clears throat> while there is some some merit to pointing out that the founders were not complete, I would say that slavery was in existence all over the world, and America was the first. To do something about it, not to the level that most of us, including me, particularly would like, but it, and secondly, it opened the door to women. By de, by demolishing primogeniture. So if you read history forwards, the founders founded a way to increase liberty founders are not closers. So it requires the unfolding of history and the actions of others later on to complete the story or to so i think there are two ways to look at it america lays the foundations for african americans and women to become part of the system through through a whole bunch of means and yeah it takes the 15th amendment and yeah 17th amendment and yeah the 19th amendment but you know in the fullness of time of history a hundred and something years ain't too long given that for centuries Human beings were serfs. I mean there was no need in the time of magna Carta, Up to 1770 that's 500 years. There was no need for shrinks. There's no need. I mean, I knew who I was Who are you a serf? How do you know that my parents were serfs? So what are you going to be a serf? There is no possibility that I could become free. I mean, I was the established critical order one of the revolutionary things I think that america did was to 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 at least lay the foundation, maybe not strong enough, maybe not wide enough, maybe not deep enough, but it laid the foundation for ending serfdom. That included slavery and it included women. It did not complete the story, but I think it laid the groundwork for the
0: story. That's my That would be my answer. Our second question is about the idea of revolution. Obviously, the American Revolution consisted of the break from England, and then the successful war for independence. But do you consider the the drafting and the adoption, the ratification, that is, of the Constitution to be a second revolution? So that there are two revolutions that take place during that era. Yeah, there's
1: some merit, a lot of merit to, to that. Using the word revolution with the adjective bloodless, the they, they qualifier bloodless in front, uh, is really important given what we've been talking before because there's an inclination, certainly since the French Revolution to inc- to associate revolution and blood. So to to identify a bloodless revolution, I think, is very instructive because it at least suggests that you can have revolution without dropping blood. And I would suggest that the Constitution Convention is an example of fundamentally changing the form of government revolution. Uh, ...without a drop of blood being spilled, um, Those who hang on to this idea that revolution is somehow bloody or underhanded... ...would um, accuse the framers of acting um, lawlessly or without mandates... ...in order to bring the idea that what they did was revolutionary... And although it was bloodless, it was fraudulent. But I think if we were to push the questioner to suggest by a bloodless revolution, do you mean um, a revolution that can occur through discussion and agreement, um, or did what Americans did is through fraud rather than force? um, True, no blood was spilt. when well, there's some tricks along the way, but I would say that the what is really distinctive about 1776 to 1787 is basically there was a revolution in government No monarchy no aristocracy uh, choosing the form of government uh, you know, Respect for private property the role of elections separation of powers which were revolutionary in the history of the world And not a drop of blood was spilled. So yeah in that sense I would say that it was a bloodless revolution which requires then the consent of of the governed who are sufficiently educated in civic education to understand what is going on rather than a mob who are uneducated and all they want is to smash And the best thing I think you can tell to a mob who's mad and wants to smash is so after you've smashed and you get smashed what happens the day after what do you do go and clean up what are you going to do you still don't have a job you still don't do such and such I mean what are you going to do this satisfaction is only going to last overnight
0: unless you have to keep doing it interesting consider that really with the Declaration of Independence and then the successful war for independence. After that, there still was no guarantee that the final result of those ideas and that those actions would be a republican form of government. And no. you know, if we look back in our history books, we can see that there was there was a movement to you know draft or or, or hope that George Washington would declare himself a, a king. Um, so that's an interesting perspective. And think about that really. Regardless yes. of what the declaration said, and regardless of the fact that the war took place and was successful, those things were no guarantee that this Republican form of government would actually be very that which good. was adopted. Very
1: good, very, very, very good, Jeremy. And therefore, you cannot hold the declaration responsible for completing. You cannot hold the, com- the framers responsible for completing. They can, they can be held responsible for the foundations and laying the foundations with the principles and the ideas. And then basically, it is up to Americans to govern themselves. I think that that's, for me, the message that I get when I read these folks. It's not that you have to genuflect to us, but you have to understand that that if you want to be free, you have to learn how to govern yourself in your private life, in your communal life, and also in your political life. That bombastic behavior is not, may work for a day, may work for two days, it gets all kinds of attention. And particularly in the modern contemporary world where discussion is, is replaced by yelling, and you watch a TV show and you've got three people talking at the same time, and, they, and it's very, very difficult to hear what they're getting at because three people are talking at the same time. But I think what's at issue, and I think you've hit it, is where does deliberative democracy, indirect democracy, uh, fit? And I think where it fits is that just because we're democratic doesn't mean to say that we're decent. And the idea is to make democracy safe for the world rather than to make the world safe for democracy. And how do you make democracy safe for the world? First of all, you have to recognize that there's a problem of gathering a mob on the streets and making a decision and then uh, destroying property and just do, doing everything like that you have to have an educated democracy in the original word democracy democracy meant "crassy rule by the demos which is greek and the and the, the original meaning um, and i know it's very difficult to say these in this sensitive times but it was rule then by the many who were poor and stupid and and that has remained for a long time. And one of the reasons why the framers did not want a pure democracy is because it was ruled directly by the many who were poor and stupid. But is it possible? And I think this is a challenge. Is it possible to have the many neither poor nor stupid? And I think America has done an extremely good job of securing that the many are not poor although that's coming under attack these days with the inequality issue. The real question for teachers and where civic education, civic engagement uh, becomes very, very important is dealing with this word stupid. And I will change it now because I realize that folks are going to be bristling a little bit that we can't use the word stupid anymore or dumb. But I will say then I use a better word, which is uh, ill-informed. And I don't see how you can have a working uh, representative democracy, indirect democracy, if the people are ill-informed about the nature of their government. What issues are involved? Do they know what? Are they simply attracted to candidates who promise everything? Are they attracted to candidates who are bombastic and have a charisma? And it gets worse when you have 320 million people over against the founding when there were 3 million. So I think scale is an extremely important issue with all of this. I think your
0: question was uh, very good indeed. Our next question is about the, the philosophical inputs, if you want to call them that, of the founders. In other words, what what were the philosophical writings uh that were contemporary of the at those times and were from the people of those times from their perspective were historical that the founders turned to for ideas or inspiration so essentially in terms of philosophy what did they read there's a very good little
1: book written by george nash on what the founders read, which I think would be very helpful. And George permitted me to do um, a pricey, you know, following the uh, policy of um, legitimate use of uh, of an author. And I put that up on the website, dealing with the framers, like what they read, their education, etc so one place that people can go is they can go to george nash's book and then what i think are the important ingredients of nash i have listed on the website and i if i were to gather from that it's from nash's presentation and from my reading the framers wrote an incredible number of letters to each other and to other people so I think that if you're if you want to get get the, the whole roll of letters libraries in America uh, grew as a result of being I mean, Jefferson left uh, work Madison left work it's uh, <clears throat> You know, there are multiple volumes put together now of Madison's papers, multiple volumes of George Washington. George, they're doing even more work at Mount Vernon now on George Washington. So there's a lot of material available which shows what they read and what they thought. And it's a mixture. And the mixture is this they had high regard for what I would call ancient doers. There is not a lot that I have found about a respect for ancient thinkers. It's ancient doers. And by that, I mean people who manage to do things and secure things. So that if you take a look at the names which are used in the debates. And the the synonyms which are used by both sides, you find uh, Cato, Brutus, Publius, Roman, actors who have had a reputation on the stage, and the theater, and in books that has been handed down to to Americans, that they were important role models to look at. So in that regard, I think the framers were well read, very well read. And particularly well read with regard to what I've said, doors. There's not a lot of reading that I've come across where, say, Madison sits down and thinks seriously about Plato's Republic. And there's a letter from Jefferson to to Adams in I think eighteen fifteen when they're talking about this. Republicanism everything and Jefferson says I've read that but I have the faintest idea why this is so important So I think that there is a certain Resistance to the Grand ideas of the past but a certain attraction To the people who manage to accomplish things and that is something that founders do What do founders do they just don't sit around and think? Founders lay foundations, so they're going to be attracted to people who are successful or unsuccessful founders, rather than people who are successful or or unsuccessful unsus- unsuccessful thinkers. If I can if I can make that distinction, that uh, 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 and I hope that works. Um, that would be my quick answer to that question. If you if you go on, I I don't I don't have it at the top of my head, but if you look on the, if you look at the website which on the convention which deals with the the, the biographies of the framers, um, it it is a, is a introductory paragraph that mentions this book and mentions um, what they have read and where they've read it, what the framers read if you find if you find that, and distribute that to the teacher, I do I'm sorry, I don't I can't read something like what the frame was read it's something, it's, it's, it, but I, I, that's how I processed it, what the framers read. but that not might that might not be the official title of the book.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Okay, okay Our last question for this session is back to this issue of revolution, uh, Bloodless or not. So obviously, we have a successful revolution that is a war of independence. We have a successful political revolution that is the Constitution. Do you believe that there have been additional revolutions since 1787? Uh, that is, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. Reconstruction a revolution?
1: Uh, that is an excellent, excellent question. And it is something that I have been dealing with for a long time, Um a long time and written a lot about it and thought a lot about it and i don't have I, do, I still don't have a good answer to that and here's why i don't have a good answer to it conservatives will moan that the founding has gone and destroyed certain conservatives southern conservatives because of reconstruction and the imposition on the south which then leads to that the war, civil war, was not really about slavery, but about northern supremacy. And then there's the idea that the New Deal changed America and moved it toward socialism. And yet America is still here. So when I hear my conservative friends talk about how the reconstruction and new deal uh, fundamentally revolutionized america i'm wondering is america still defensible is and why are we still interested in the founding why are we still interested in the very basic questions if america has why, i mean why not start the story of america with the new deal um, or if you think that the civil war amendments were the key Why not just start the history of America there? Why why even bother with the frames, It seems to me. That's just nutty. so I don't th- there's a certain part of me which says yeah Reconstruction said that we're not going to have um, Black folks out of the system and New Deal said we're not going to forget the forgotten man now That is revolutionary in the sense that it changes the role of government. But I think the question would be, would the framers recognize that and be comfortable with it? And then are we, have we really introduced a conflict between studying the framers and studying the New Deal and studying reconstruction? I think it's a great question. I am, I am, I think I've expressed it in the sense of, I've thought about it a long, long time part of me says yes it is a it is a revolution the, fifth, it, the 15th amendment the 17th amendment the progressive amendments and the, and, and, and the new legal policies and social security and uh, labor relations have comp- fundamentally altered the nature of american government um and and and, and yet and yet i you know, conservatives are grim because they think that the nation is going into into a handbasket. Then when I talk to my liberal friends, they they they're not particularly interested in the founding. Yeah, Reconstruction was important, but not enough. That the New Deal was important, but it fell short. And so here we are in a handbasket, and things are grim, because we haven't really transformed America. It hasn't been a revolution. So I get very Confused about about whether it is or is not a revolution. But the, the conservatives think it's a revolution and they're ticked off. The, the left think it's not a revolution and it should have been and they're ticked off. And so I have to figure out what really makes America tick. That's politics. And I think it's amazing how we continue and yet we change and i don't i i i fully admit i have worked that paradox out but it seems to me that 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 america can, can only succeed let me put it this way i don't know that this is a is it's a smart aleck formula but i don't know that it's unhelpful what i think the conservatives have to realize is that there has been uh a social and sexual revolution, and that it is highly unlikely that we that we, we say conservatives would be able to roll back both of them. And if we take Reagan as the model, in his famous "Time for Change" speech after Johnson in 1964, introduced the Great Society, he said, "I am not here to challenge Social Security." so apparently according to reagan the time is not right for changing the new deal it is somehow to restrain the new deal rather than overcome the new deal so are conservatives willing to accept that i think reagan was the sexual revolution i mean even reagan was in favor of of, of abortion, et cetera. But I don't think Americans are going to be persuaded by an argument that says we have to get rid of the New Deal and we have to get rid of the sexual revolution. I think there's going to be a resistance. On the other hand, what is it that the progressives have to come to grips with in order to remain within the American argument or American conversation? And I think the answer is God and guns. That is, progressives will keep pushing to try to get rid of God, but they won't do it. They can't do it. It will be resisted at every attempt. And there will be certain outrages and unfathomable actions. But God isn't going to disappear. And I don't think guns are going to disappear. So my, my point is that conservatives, perhaps, need to realize that the New Deal or at least part of the New Deal and the 1960s sexual revolution ain't going away. Can you handle that, conservatives? Or do you think that means that America is going into a bucket? But I don't, where, And where will you go if that's the case? And to leftists, I would say, look, I know you want to get rid of God. I know you want to get rid of guns. But you're not going to get it because America won't let you. So what are you prepared to deal with? And how can we then live? So within that framework, I think that that wasn't the framework of 1787, but I think the framework of 1787 says, we're gonna have a diversity of ideas and diversity of opinions. The issue is, can we have that diversity through some kind of compromise or will we have a war? Where people aren't going to agree and disagree and want to wipe each other out because of something Now, the issue in 1787 was not New Deal. And uh, sexual revolution, nor God, nor guns. The issue was, how can we secure rights through a different form of government and aristocracy and monarchy? That was the issue. We have a different issue today. And that becomes a question, to what, to what extent, and if we have different issues and different parameters, to what extent can the founders help us? Why go back if they weren't dealing with this issue? Why, and I think, I mean, I think that's the greatest challenge to people like me who think it's extremely valuable to go back and reflect and to portray the issues. And that's my life. So these questions are important to me, particularly the question that the founders are irrelevant. And if the founders are irrelevant, why the heck are we studying them? And I don't think they're irrelevant. That's my, uh, and I want to be optimistic. And I think both sides in the argument tend to be pessimistic and tend to be evangelical. No child left behind, no, no, no brick left behind in building a wall be- to, to Mexico. This kind of evangelical language of abolition and, and, and getting rid of things. Uh, and you know it's not gonna happen. Human nature is not like that. So how do you live with that and teach your kids Things aren't going to be perfect because we're not perfect and other people aren't perfect and I think it's important when I end this first lesson first session is to say that I think the framers agreed on a more perfect union. Rather than a perfect union The union is not perfect and to criticize it for its lack of perfection is to misunderstand that life is not perfect. And the best that we can possibly do is to have a more perfect union, whether it's in marriage or friendship or in the community. And I think that's what America has contributed to our story. I'm going to end on that.
0: Well, Dr. Lord, thank you so much for your your time, uh, your insight, and, uh, and this session. We really appreciate it, and I know that the teachers and other folks who, who take the time to listen to this will learn a great deal from it. Again, this program is a re-recording, actually, of the first session of a six-session webinar series put on jointly between TeachingAmericanHistory.org and the Center for Civic Education's We the People program. This first session, 45 yeah. minutes of a presentation and then a short question and answer period, on the end, focused on the first hearing question for the Fall 2015 We the People program. Thank Thank you. you so much for listening, and we hope you attend future programs. Good night.